giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Mike Trotsky, CEO of Cheddar. Subscription and recurring billing built for developers by developers. Mike, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chad. So how long has Cheddar been going for now? Well, Cheddar's kind of got an interesting background because it's been around for quite a while, but I actually kind of came on as CEO and it's kind of had a revival for about the last year. Well, since June 30th last year. So Cheddar started out as a spinoff of another company I have called Sproutbox. And Sproutbox is kind of like a hybrid between a software development firm and a venture capital firm. So we, uh, for many years, built web applications in exchange for equity. So we built about, we have about 28 companies in our portfolio that do all kinds of different things. And there we did something a little bit crazy. We built a new web or mobile application every three months. So from somebody with an idea to an early product on the market generating revenue. And actually all of the bonuses for everybody who worked there were tied to sort of that first dollar that the, the product could process through it. And so we got really good at building something that could get that first dollar. And one thing we realized is that we couldn't spend a month or two months out of a three-month development cycle building billing systems over and over again. And that's really where Cheddar started. It started kind of as a library and then it became an API. And then my co-founder sort of took it over and, and ran it on the technical side. Um, and it was, it was really important to us because it was a single point of failure for most of the companies we had invested in. But just over a year ago, um, we raised a seed round and I joined up to to really try and take it to market. How did you know it was time to do that? Was there a specific trigger? Yeah. I mean, the thing for me was I got really excited about usage-based billing models and kind of believe that the first you know, sort of wave of monetization of the internet was all one-time driven. You know, the last decade or so has been really, really driven by subscription. But I believe that the next decade is really going to be about consumption billing models, about tracking activity and billing based on that activity, and hybrid models that include, you know, one-time flat and usage-driven billing. And uh, I don't think there's a good platform out there that has, has sort of been built to be usage-native, and when I took a look at Cheddar and the way that we structured it, interestingly enough, we didn't structure it that way at all to solve that problem, really. Uh, we structured it that way because it was the smallest touch point we could come up with for developers to have to think about billing. So mm-hmm. rather than them having to think about pricing and sit in pricing meetings and do overages and discuss where they would be, we sort of abstracted away billing to the idea of just send us activity data, right? So it's more like Google Analytics or something like that, where you, you we think of it as plugging a meter into a piece of SaaS software and then just tracking activity and what's happening. So developers only need to know, okay, hey, these are the 15 things we want to track in the platform. How many users there are, how many documents they create, how many text messages they send, whatever those things are for a particular platform. These are the things we want to track. And then you define a pricing scheme per customer or a set of pricing schemes. And that can all be done by the product team inside of Cheddar. So Cheddar was built that way so that developers could spend, a, our dev team at Sproutbox could spend a lot less time on billing and focus on the core of the product. But it just happens to turn out that that's a really good way to structure a system that works really well for usage-based billing. And so 
I got excited about the trend that I think is coming, and it's and it's already starting to happen. But I think is is a big opportunity ahead in in that space, and so I decided to go all in on it, and it's been it's been really fun. Once you decided to do that, was there any question about whether you would raise money? As as far as a choice, yeah. Uh, no, I think it was pretty clear that for what we were trying to do, we needed to raise money. Um, one of the challenges we have is where we're positioning ourselves is really as a developer tool and we're selling to developers who are building billing systems in in most cases, which means that their initial revenue on the platform, if you're a startup coming on the platform, is pretty low. So if you look at some of the challenges for the business, the months to recover is really high because we charge per transaction. And so companies that we acquire today take several months before they finish their platform and go live in most cases, then they're acquiring customers and we're only making a small piece. So there's definitely a financing need to scale that business because there isn't a lot of upfront revenue in it. So it was pretty clear that we were going to need to raise money to really grow the business, at least at the speed that I envisioned. But whether we were going to, that was a different question. Uh, We're in Bloomington, Indiana. It's not a typical capital-rich part of the country. In fact, there's you know very few venture capital firms in Indiana, and that that trend has only changed over the last you know few years. So whether or not we would be able to easily put together a round, that was a different question. But that probably to execute Cheddar at the scale that I'd like to see it executed at, and I, or the rest of our team would, uh, I think we needed to raise some capital for this type of business. Now, when you look at Sproutbox businesses, we are very, for the most part, very revenue centric. We love revenue as a metric. We're not afraid of that. And so most of the time, I'm, you know, we're, we're super pro bootstrap type companies. And that's a lot of the companies we've invested in. In fact, the goal with Sproutbox originally was to turn companies out of the program, what we call right side up. What we would do is bring a team of 10 in to work on somebody's idea, usually along with a couple of founders, and send them out where they were on the market generating revenue, but had no fixed expenses. And so they didn't have to raise capital. They could raise capital for growth, not survival. And so it's kind of an odd thing that I decided to, to focus in on a company that needed to raise capital, in my view, and was the type of company that that made sense. But that's part of the reason I did it. I took on the challenge. I mean, we had a, a company before Sproutbox that did online rent payment, and we bootstrapped that company up and sold it. And so for me, you know, something larger like this was was what I wanted to do next. So you mentioned you weren't sure you were going to be able to raise. <laughs> How did that work out? I mean, it was challenging in some ways, but the Midwestern ecosystem has really developed. So when we went out to raise, a round was led by a group in Chicago, M25 group, that's a very active uh, investment group, but they don't typically lead rounds. In fact, we may be the only round they lead. I mean, I know that we're the only board seat they've taken and they've made, I think, 60 or 70 investments. So they're, mm-hmm. they're, it's a it's an odd situation. So we, we kind of lucked out with that group. Um, they wanted to lead every once in a while, but they're really more of an index the Midwest uh, strategy fund. And that's the hardest part, particularly in the Midwest, is finding a lead investor, right? So once we had that, we were able to raise capital from cultivation in, in St. Louis, Kinetic in Cincinnati, uh, several other firms in Chicago. So uh, it definitely, me being in Indiana, it took me hitting the road quite a bit to make that happen, which might be different than in some other markets. But at this point, you know, the Midwest seed market at least has developed to a point where that's feasible to raise a reasonable seed round. Did you try to raise from elsewhere or did you really focus on the Midwest? 
We were strategic about trying to raise in those cities in particular. They were cities where we wanted to build out a developer ecosystem. And so for us, that was the focus. I mean, since I spent, you know, seven years prior to that in venture, I did have some good contacts outside of the Midwest. But, you know, we sort of decided, hey, let's let's prove this out. Let's figure out how we're really taking this product to market. Let's show what's working and what's not working and what we and, and solve that problem. Then look to talk to some folks on the coast as we approach more of a series A type raise. So now that you've raised the money and been working, you mentioned you've bootstrapped previous things you did. What are some of the big differences that stand out to you between we're bootstrapping this and here's what we're doing versus we've raised a bunch of money and we're doing it that way? I mean, it is very different. You know, I talk about revenue as a metric. Obviously, when you're bootstrapping, it's the only metric, right? So you're focused, mm-hmm. you're focused more on, I have to have X amount to cover this month. And how pretty that revenue is doesn't really matter as much as that you have it. So, you know, if you have to do some custom stuff here, or it's not necessarily anything that's going to drive your MR, but, and it doesn't matter what your custom acquisition cost is, like you're not even thinking about that sort of thing. You're just trying to land business as quickly as possible to cover payroll, which I have experienced for many years. Uh, before we got up and running. It took us probably, we were probably two or three years ahead of market at Resite at the rent payment company. And it wasn't until later in that company that it really started taking off. And so there were many difficult years of doing custom web development and things to keep the lights on. When raising capital, things are very different because that's not the pressure. But you have a, a, a different and, and almost more frustrating pressure, which is really to figure out how to set whatever your metrics are. But for us, you know, it's it's really understanding our customer acquisition cost and getting our conversion rates to the right point that it makes sense to scale this business at a series A level, right? And so that's hard. And in many ways, a lot less in your control, or at least it doesn't feel the same level of control that I have. If I have to go out and close a deal, like I can do that. I can actually, interesting if I can work harder and make more money, but it's actually kind of hard to work really hard at, for example, improving your conversion rate. Mm-hmm. Because first of all, you need enough time to see the data. So like you you cram like crazy for an iteration and then you're like, you're just sort of sitting there going, is this working? I don't know. And then you, you know, you're waiting right. and then you get data back and then you just got enough data to say, no, it didn't work. Okay, let's try this. Right. And so it's it, the, the pace is different and the tension is different, but the pace and tension is still there in both cases, I think. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the team. You mentioned Cheddar existed before you raised and you joined and raised the money so that you could take it to the next level, I guess is another way of putting it. Yeah. What are some of the things that you did that immediately changed around the team or what the focus was in terms of making that change for the business? Well, I mean, there was no one on the team at that time that was focused on growth at all. It was just entirely focused on product. Yeah, it's a small team, right? So my co-founder, Mark Geyer, was running it and doing an amazing job at making sure that the servers were running, that the product was scaling, because it'd been around for a while, and some of our companies had gotten larger that used it. So the product had to scale with those companies as they grew. The functionality had to change, obviously, in a high transaction volume like we have on both sides, both in the payment side. But because our system works fundamentally different than most billing systems, where we're taking usage data in real time from all of our customers Mm -hmm. throughout the billing period. We have a very high volume of incoming rights, right? And so lots of challenges with that. Um, So customer success and engineering were were the important parts. So the first thing we did is we brought on Libby Tucker, who's our director of growth, 
and Wes and Eric, a couple of folks focused on growth, which that's just not something that really had been a focus before the fundraise, right? And so all that other stuff that's going on is still super important. It's just now there's a whole nother sort of operation of folks who are, who are really focused on, you know, figuring out the best way to grow the business and then executing on, on the best way to grow the business. How did you find those people? That was hard. Libby was a great find and, and we were very lucky but she changed the entire culture of the company too, because uh, she was our first remote person. She's also a remote work expert. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, well, if, if we're gonna make the leap to a, a remote company, uh, that's a good hire, right? Because she can help on both sides of what we're trying to do. Um, and so the whole culture of the company had to change um, in order to accommodate particularly one remote person at the beginning. And then now we have more and more remote folks. Now, we did luck out with a couple of young folks, Eric and Wes, who were in Bloomington, Indiana, where Indiana University is. Um, and they were basically the best. One thing to be said about being in a smaller town tech environment is that, you know, the competition is different. So they worked with us while they were in school and then stayed on afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to get some of the absolute best coming out of the university and convince them to stay with us. Now, they went remote, but they stayed with us coming out of the university. And that was a a huge win for us, I think. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Libby was a great hire. Is it just you put the position online and she applied or did it come through your personal (laughs) That one actually was. I mean, mean, we scoured, yeah, we, well, AngelList, Mm -hmm. we found each other through there. I think we had an application, but that wasn't the direction. Mm -hmm. We had, we had a, uh, Libby and I already had a high degree of mutual connections, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly through, she she had been involved in Startup Bus and so had I, and she involved in a lot of Startup Weekend stuff. She's based in Seattle and we had a ton of connections already. We just didn't happen to know each other, but we actually found each other through AngelList but I look for lots of folks. I mean, that was a hard one because the type of business that we're looking to build at Cheddar is not the typical Indiana business. Mm-hmm. Not even just, I mean, obviously it's tech, but not even that. Like what we've gotten really good at in the Indianapolis market in particular has gotten really good at is companies like Exact Target, where well, it's MarTech for one, but probably even bigger to that is enterprise focused SaaS products, right? Mm-hmm. That are driven by sales teams. And I think the Indiana market is as good at any at producing, you know, great SaaS salespeople. Um, but if you're trying to build a customer self-service, customer self-sign-up product targeted towards developers that don't necessarily want to be called on by salespeople, uh, that's a much harder thing. And so, like, marketing roles are typically sales support roles in most of those companies. And for us, the growth role was was the role, right, and was the the source of customers. So that was tricky to find here. And and that's one of the reasons, you know, we, we needed to look outside of and look into remote work to accomplish it. So when it comes to Cheddar, which is billing, you know, we've been exposed and we've built a lot of apps ourselves that involve billing. And I'm sure we had some of the same feelings around sort of products like Cheddar <laughs> that many of your hmm. customers do. It's like, well, this is easy. We only need this one piece. So we'll build that. <laughs> yep. And you just underestimate how much effort is involved in building a robust billing system. I mean, software engineers never underestimate. I don't know what you're That'll <laughs> <laughs> take two weeks, right? It'll take two right. weeks, I'm sure. Well, yeah. and the reality is it probably does 
but that is only that first thing and it doesn't right, do right. so much that you actually need to run a product and grow well and that's the thing that really you know identified this challenge to me mm-hmm. was that we did 28 of those in a row every three you know three months boom 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 you know 10 of those in where you're doing the same thing over and over and you're like oh yeah well now this company is saying well i don't have any reporting you guys didn't build that way right? you said you might but you didn't get to it what about oh you know the proration doesn't work right when we go from monthly to annual or what what whatever those mm-hmm. things are that you pop up and you realize oh man yeah i guess i didn't think about that we had to do that and this and this and and then the other big thing is when you start to realize that folks were wrong about their pricing because as much as i spend thinking about how to take a first stab at your pricing and get the right answer the, the right answer that you th- even through that whole process is wrong um mm-hmm. and so as I saw these companies that we were still involved with that we built need to iterate on pricing. And then they had, you know, you could see that they had to have these like massive code releases and code changes and delays and get on release cycles to make iterations on pricing. And it was so painful for them to do. That was another big thing for me that just was like, yeah, the way people are approaching this and building it themselves the way they are is not the, the right way for this to be done. Are you trying to target developers who already get it or are you trying to change developers' minds? <laughs> yeah, uh, that is a great question. I mean, if I could target developers who already get it, then of course, uh, you know, we want, mm-hmm. that's a lot easier. But yeah, I mean, there's a movement on two sides, right? There's a movement around developers feeling comfortable, you know, trusting billing to an API, Right. There's been several of those that have happened. I mean, I remember when told me talking about exact target, people told me, well, no, the IT never wants. Why would they send their email servers outside of their network? You know, and Uh then it's file hosting. Well, the security, you know, and the Dropbox type thing, you know, we've gone through a lot of a lot of that where people become comfortable, you know, leveraging services. And yeah, there's some of that with Billy. I mean, developers are comfortable with payment processing so they can understand that that piece of it is not something they want to do. But extending that to billing sometimes is a challenge. Though what I find is that if a developer can understand how much easier using a system like Cheddar is where you're just tracking usage activity and the product team is worrying about the rest, or you can, but the point is you don't have to write code for that. And they get the idea of isolating pricing from the code base once they kind of catch that, which is pretty quick for most it's a concept that's similar to lots of other concepts that developers adhere to. But you do have to communicate that to someone, and there's cost in doing that. And that's kind of back to what I was saying earlier, particularly when us recouping those costs over time is a challenge. You know, that's the journey we're on right now is how to best communicate the developer evangelism side and then also the pricing side. So getting more people to think about usage-based and consumption pricing and Mm -hmm. how to handle that, you know, Um, going beyond just tiers or flat subscription and really identifying a value metric and including that. So those are both somewhat new concepts that we do have to go out and persuade people on. That's part of the reason we're working on this pricing bootcamp and pricing workbook. Um, We're Mm -hmm. producing a guide to help people look at things a little bit differently. I mean, all, all the methods that are out there. There's tons of them. And most of them are by, you know, folks who have spent a lot more time, at least in an academic sense, studying pricing than I have. But they're sort of blind to the idea of what SaaS businesses are like, right? You know, physical good pricing theory. 
um, that there's a lot of information on, like single one-time purchases. Mm-hmm. But really, like, you know, there's a lot of things that are very different about pricing a subscription product. And it's not just about a price. There's also a lot to understand about how to charge and to generate that revenue. So you have, mm-hmm. you know, it's $600 a month. Well, okay, how do you generate $600 a month? And how does that scale from small to medium to large companies? Those are components that are typically left out of, you know, most pricing strategies. So we're trying to help, you know, move the ball forward a little bit on how people approach pricing as well. So I imagine that most listeners understand what we're talking about when, but let's not take it for granted. (laughs) When you say usage base versus packages and tiers, let's just break that down a little bit. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the typical way that a SaaS company has priced has been flat subscription. Mm -hmm. And maybe I tier that because I realize that my small customers and my medium customers, my large customers can't pay the same amount. So it's $100 a month, $500 a month, and $1,500 a month uh, for my product, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's usually feature base. Some you kind of I mean, I've watched this a million times. You've watched people sit and they try and come up with some kind of feature to allow you to gate between one of those plans and the next, right? Usage-based billing is, maybe you still have some flat monthly fees involved in it, but you're kind of smoothing out those gaps because you're applying some sort of a metric, refer to it as a value metric or set of value metrics, because you're trying to tie that metric to the value you're providing. So that might be something like in our case, you know, our pricing is a hundred bucks a month and 30 cents a transaction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have customers that pay us thousands of dollars a month, even though we have a $99 a month fee, right? But they're paying on every single invoice that we generate on their behalf. And we've recently added now that if we also do your processing, uh, we can do the whole thing, including processing for that $99 a month and then just charge 2.9 plus 30 on top of that, including processing and billing. So, you know, for us, that is a great value metric. The core value we're providing is tracking all this activity, but the real importance of that is when we can bring that together, combine it with a pricing plan and generate an invoice for someone. So that's what it makes sense for us to bill based on. So we don't have any tiers. And so finding that for your business, it might be the number of text messages you send or the number of times you uh, deliver a proposal or th- there's, it, you know, it, it varies. And you might have to mix a few of those together. You might have to have some minimal tiering involved in it as well when you come to your price. But putting into the mix the option of tracking something that your users are doing in the system and then incrementally billing or having overage billing for those things is kind of at the core of, of usage-based billing. And people have been doing it for a while, but I use the word not natively, the way it's typically done is like when you go to generate an invoice for someone, you tack on some items. So it's driven by the subscription and then you tack on something rather than saying, hey, let's start at the top and everything is just usage. Just throw data to sort of a simple counter and then use that as the basis for you to apply pricing rule sets to to actually generate invoices. And that paradigm of billing is, is kind of what I'm referring to when I say usage-based billing. So things like Heroku and right. SendGrid Absolutely. have done that basically from the beginning charging. Yeah, SendGrid is, you know, like my favorite company. The director of developer evangelism for four and a half years at SendGrid, Tim Falls, is on our board. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so like, if I think about both the kind of company that I want to build across all kinds of different viewpoints, right? But they do a great job of usage-based billing. They do a great job of developer evangelism. Yeah. So that's a great example. And some products are easier to find what the value metric is than others. Yeah. And so part of our pricing bootcamp is about trying to help people beyond sort of just the basic surveys or even like the Von Wessinger method or whatever. We're doing that, but we're also asking a lot of questions about usage and then trying to use that data to help figure out what your value metric might be. When we were building FormKeep and thinking about pricing for that, which I talked about in a blog post on the OpenView blog, which we can include a link to in the show notes. Which is an awesome post, by the way. I love it. It's, Thanks. It, it actually, Thanks. I think uh, I read it and we're working on writing a book on this topic. And I was like, this is almost, I mean, it's almost exactly the messaging that we're trying to get out about pricing. So it's good stuff. Yeah. But I don't I don't think I put it in there is that we, we tried to find a usage-based pricing model. Mm. In the blog post, I only wrote about the ones that we actually tried. Mm-hmm. And the thing that we couldn't figure out, and maybe maybe you can provide some insight and maybe I, I can see now what we are missing, is that most of the customers' forms are very, very low traffic. They're contact forms on websites and that kind of thing. What we found was one form might be super valuable. Right. Like it's our lead form on our website, but it gets two or three submissions a month. And having usage-based billing on that, we, we just couldn't figure out how we could. Right. The value, the value to the customer is really, really high. But if it's right. just pure usage-based, then the transactions that you would charge for that form just are not high enough to make it make sense, right? So there's right. a couple of different things with that. I mean, one, I'm not saying that I'm opposed at all to flat billing um, like right, you, ended, right. you I mean, well, you ended up in a in a tier scenario, right? So you yes, ended up, did, yeah. which to me actually is just a form of a usage based system. Yeah, because what we found was the majority of customers were agencies who were building a lot of websites, and so the usage based metric was how many forms they were actually setting up, and we created tiers around that, and right. they were using across many different websites. Right. So you weren't tracking submissions; you were tracking number of forms set up and then and then using mm-hmm. that data to kick over. Yeah. What I would encourage and that may have been the the right model in your case unless what you did is is split your product into into verticals, right? So when you see that happening. So one of the things you do we we do this thing called the pricing spectrum where we sort of set everything down, we look at value-based and that's where you would see this variance in your case, like a value-based pricing variance among your customer groups. Mm-hmm. So you would see a high variation uh, among different types of customers in the amount of value they were receiving from your product at different price points, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. when you see that, you can either decide, okay, the variance is too high on this to use that as our value metric, which is a reasonable decision. Or you say, what are the things that are similar about those different groups of customers, right? So these guys are in healthcare, the value to them is really, really high. How can we make a healthcare branded product or a healthcare version of our product? Yeah. You know, how can we split, you know, one of our companies that does scheduling finds that sometimes they do bookings, right? You worked on a booking app as well, didn't you? Yes. (laughs) I've worked on a few. The one I've been working on recently is a product called SplitFit that allows people to book personal training sessions with a trainer, sort of like Uber for personal training. I'm on the board for periodic, but it, it's it's like a, a more abstracted booking engine that can be used by mm-hmm. marketplaces and different things. And one of the challenges they have is just that, like 
Some people, the value is really high, like on a per location basis. Sometimes it's based on booking, you know, and one solution to that is just that is to break it out and say, okay, for automotive, which is typically location driven, we have a product and we have a different product over here for these other things or do like what you guys are doing, which is a brand that's booking specifically around training, right? Even though the core tech Mm -hmm. is very similar. So that's the two choices you have. And with all this stuff, it's not like there's a right answer. There's just an informed answer, right? So at the end, when you get to, you're looking at the pricing spectrum thing that we sort of try and create in the workbook, it's like, you're still deciding whether or not you want to do that splitting or choose a different value metric, or if you want to be on the high end of the available space in the market that the kind of analysis you did made, if you want to be a high end product or or a value product or whatever, you're still making all those decisions. Um, It's just informed art instead of just guesswork is the goal, right? So what I'm hearing is there are products where you look at it it and you determine usage doesn't make sense. Or usage without some kind of tiers associated with it or some... uh, What we usually think about is that, okay, if you've got a plan and your smaller customers are not paying enough compared to, say, your cost plus analysis. Mm -hmm. So the core of the idea is you go through, you know, the four basic things, value-based, cost plus, survey-driven, and competitive analysis, right? And then you kind of lay those out on a spectrum and you do that each for small, medium, and large persona, right? And if you say, okay, my small customers are not paying enough, you can have small monthly fees that you kind of add into your usage track, your value metric to bring up the small customers. Or you have large monthly fees that you add in that are feature-based to kind of balance out the larger companies. So what you're really doing is you're just kind of starting with the idea of a value metric and then you're using the monthly fees and tiers in order to smooth out that value metric so that it scales nicely across your small, medium, and large personas, right? So, you know, you walk through that process and there's a lot of decisions that are, you know, they're not mathematical answers. They're like, okay, yeah, this is the kind of company I want to be. I mean, that's the thing that, you know, people spend so little time on pricing compared to the impact that it has on what your business right. is like. Like, I mean, the way it affects your culture, whether or not your marketing or sales-driven culture, how it affects the what your customers are like, what, you know, are they on the high end or low end? Like, almost the entire company is defined by your pricing, and yet people spend, I think the stat is like eight hours total ever, you know, not like a week or a month, you know, it's like in the entire lifetime of the company. And so that's one of the big things that we're just out talking about. It's like, hey, think a lot more about pricing. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about your post is that, you know, it's clear that you guys thought a lot about pricing. And when, when you're helping other companies design and build their products, you guys are, are helping them with that as well. And I think that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And one of the great things about Cheddar is whether you have usage-based billing or not, you're tracking usage, right. but Cheddar is a platform for billing. And if you end up with tiers... It still works. Absolutely. Yeah. The idea is that you're collecting data in real time, some of which you bill for and some of which you don't. And that's fine. And you can try out different billing models. So you can go in and say, okay, well, for this customer, I'm going to do it like this. And for this customer, I'm going to do it like that without having to release a whole set of new code, right? It gives you an abstraction layer to make that kind of thing more possible. And so, yeah, the idea is the things that you were doing at FormKeep where you were trying different models, the goal would be to make that easier for you to do and make you to be able to have tried, you know, 10 instead of five or whatever, and hopefully informed a better decision in the end. Any surprises in your work at Cheddar over the last year? Plenty. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, some of our uh, marketing channels just behave wildly different than some testing I did before we raised capital, some better, some worse. When we're dealing with this 
some new ideas, right? Like you were saying, are you, are you convincing mm-hmm. people? There's a little bit of chaos to it. Um, I can't, you can go in and talk to one group and I would say by and large, it goes super well, but then occasionally you have someone who's just like, I would never move my billing from an in-house system, right? Boom. Like, right. and so then maybe the whole presentation to that group falls apart or whatever. Are most people who are using Cheddar, are they switching their billing? Are they existing product with an existing billing system and they're switching or are they starting from scratch? We are targeting people who are starting from scratch, though I will say, Mm-hmm. Again, when, you know, going back to that decision, that balance as a you know funded company between you know revenue growth and metric improvement, right? Where it's like, right. for us, migration customers are great because they bring immediate revenue. They're also hard to identify, right? So you're looking for someone who is having a problem with their billing system usually, or uh, has an in-house system, uh, but you know they're hard to identify, and the sales cycles are long, but they bring over a much larger MR when they come over, right? So mm-hmm. we definitely do that. And particularly, it's, what's great is when we run across a company in that mode that already gets it, right? That's like, yeah, I understand that I have a billing system, but I also understand that I don't think my pricing is exactly right. And the value to me to be able to optimize pricing on a platform is really high. And if somebody already gets that, then... The switching costs, which are high. I mean, it's difficult to move billing systems. You know, I've been a CTO before. I can understand why you wouldn't want to make that decision. There's so much new product development you want to do that it's really hard to say, okay, we're going to take time from our dev team to rewrite our billing system. It takes a lot of forward thinking to make that decision. So most of the time, we're focused on trying to build a business that sells to people who are building billing systems. So that's really easy because all of a sudden you're on the flip side of that thought from a CTO's perspective. You know, as a software engineer, I'd look at it and go, oh, you mean I can knock off like a month of our dev schedule to get this launched and build this other Mm -hmm. thing I want to build? Yes, please. Right. So you're on the other side of that. Of course, for us on the business side, that means we have to wait longer for that customer to be successful. And we have to understand the nature of our business, which is that lots of those companies never make it over the the hump, right? So right. they think they're going to build something and they never get it out the door. So that all has to be part of our learning and understanding of how our business works. That's the phase that we're in right now, right? Is we're figuring that out so that we have the right answer when we go out to raise additional capital that says, hey, look, this is exactly what happens. We understand this and this is how we're going to scale it. Well, Mike, I wish you the best of luck, and <laughs> I'm sure that everything will be perfect, and you'll never run into any problems with that. <laughs> Somehow, I don't think that's the way it's going to go, but you know what? Yeah. That would be boring, though, right? I mean, this is why I've spent so long in startups, man, is I love the challenge of the unknown, right? And I think we have a, a great product to take out there, but I'm excited about overcoming every one of those problems that are going to come up. If people want to learn more about Cheddar or get in touch with you or follow along with you, where's the best places for them to do that? Obviously, Twitter's always great, at get underscore Cheddar. We're at getcheddar.com. I'm at Trotsky, T-R-O-T-Z-K-E on Twitter as well. I encourage people to check out the Pricing Bootcamp. It's a four-week email course where we send out an email walking you through the process. And hopefully by the end of that time period, you can take a first stab at pricing and also have a framework to you know reevaluate your pricing every quarter or so. So that's the goal of it. That's great. Um, so check that out as well.
Yeah, all of those things we just mentioned, including the boot camp, will be linked in the notes for this episode, which you can find at giantrobots.fm and right in your podcast player, I'm sure. You can subscribe to the show at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm and you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Oborski. Mike, thanks for joining me. Great, thanks for having me. And thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.